Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rose. Today we're going to try something a little different. I'd like to welcome a new member to the Legends of Surgery podcast, Dr. David Sigmund, who is a general surgery resident at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and currently doing his second of two research years into surgical education at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been working behind the scenes doing research for a few podcasts, but will hopefully be making some episodes of his own in the not-too-distant future. Having looked at some of the previous topics, David noticed that we haven't covered a specific organ in a while, and so he wrote an episode on the history of the adrenal glands. Of course, there's plenty to talk about in terms of its discovery, which took a surprisingly long time, as we'll see, determining its function, and of course, how to deal with its dysfunction. And in the spirit of the podcast, we'll talk about the history of surgery on the adrenals and look at a few ways these little paired organs have had an effect on society in general. So let's get pumped up and talk adrenals in this episode of Legends of Surgery. As always, let's start with the basics. These glands are named after their relation to the kidney, with renis being Latin for kidney and ad being Latin for of or near, which makes perfect sense as they sit above the kidneys. The right one is shaped like a pyramid and the left like a crescent moon. Like the kidneys, and incidentally like some bones, the adrenal glands are divided into an outer layer called the cortex, from the Latin word for bark or rind, and an inner layer called the medulla, which is Latin for marrow or pith, the soft inner center in some plant stems. Now, the purpose of the adrenal gland is to make a number of different hormones. The cortex is further divided into three layers and produces hormones that affect blood pressure, metabolism, and the immune system, and produces sex hormones, which will become important later, as we'll see. The medulla is responsible for the production of catecholamines, which are hormones that give us the famous fight-or-flight response. This is a physiological reaction to perceived threats and prepares your body to either fight or flee. It was first described by Walter Bradford Cannon, a Harvard doctor and physiologist who coined the term fight-or-flight in 1915 and popularized the theory in a book entitled The Wisdom of the Body, which he first published in 1932. These hormones are called adrenaline and noradrenaline, or epinephrine and norepinephrine for our non-British listeners. Physiologically, this organ obviously plays important roles in the body and has one of the highest blood flow rates per gram of mass in the body. A number of disorders can arise from the adrenal glands and in one case, may have even contributed to bringing the world to the brink of a nuclear war. But first, let's go back a little further in time. Now, there are many known early descriptions of tissue around the kidneys, that some historians believe are descriptions of the adrenals, including Homer in the Iliad saying of Astropaeus after Achilles slew him that, quote, the fish and eels nibbled at the fat around his kidneys, end quote. Or in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, when discussing how to make a proper fellowship offering from a herd, which includes, quote, the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, end quote. However, it's difficult to discern if they're talking about the adrenal specifically in these cases, precisely since the kidneys are surrounded by perirenal fat, or fat around the kidneys, within what's called Giroda's fascia, a layer of connective tissue named after the Romanian urologist Dimitri Giroda, who described it. One of the earliest known descriptions of the adrenal glands that actually seems to definitively distinguish the adrenal tissue from the fat around the kidneys comes from our old friend Galen, who first noticed them in animals during one of his numerous extensive dissections. 
However, he thought it to be merely accessory renal tissue and described it somewhat dismissively as loose flesh. Although he did properly describe the anatomy of the left adrenal vein, which enters the left renal vein, instead of directly entering the inferior vena cava, like the adrenal vein does on the right. With the Italian anatomist Bartolomeo Eustachi, the same Eustachi for which the middle ear's eustachian tubes are named, is generally credited with the first description of human adrenal glands in 1563 or 1564, while he was a professor at the Collegio della Sapienza. He gave them the somewhat cumbersome name of glandulae renibus incumbentes, or incumbent renal glands, and believed that they had been overlooked as an independent structure by other anatomists. Now, he was right on this point, but unfortunately his great work, Opuscula Anatomica, or The Anatomical Works, would not be widely published until 1714. It had been forgotten and was collecting dust in the Papal Library and not widely disseminated until it was discovered by the Pope's personal physician, Dr. Giovanni Maria Lancisi, who edited the plates before publishing and distributing them under the name bear with me now, Tabulae Anatomicae Bartholomae Eustachii Quas a Tenebris Tandem Vindicatus, or Anatomical Illustrations of Bartolomeo Eustachii Rescued from Obscurity. The books would go on to become a bestseller a century after Eustachii's death, which I think is a clear commentary on its worth. In his research, David actually found a rare bookseller offering a first edition for $50,000. Of course, like many great discoveries, and in a pattern we've become quite familiar with here from previous episodes, Eustachie's labeling of the tissue of the kidneys as an independent gland was met by resistance within the medical community. Arcangelo Piccolomini, a contemporary of Eustachie and the personal physician to popes Paul IV, Pius IV, and Gregory XIII, had labeled the glands the suprarenal, saying, quote, Sometimes one may see two or more glands lying on the kidney, but we do not think they deserve special attention because they are not to be found in every case, and they have no flesh or parenchyma of their own, so that they might be considered renal excrescences, end quote. He also said that they were like sixth fingers, created by an extra abundance of material. Additionally, Dr. André de Lorenz of France, the personal physician to King Henry IV, also disagreed with Eustachie that the adrenals were a gland of their own, and felt that they were just an extension of the kidneys and that they were only occasionally present. The adrenals continued as an area of controversy throughout the remainder of the 1500s and into the 1600s, with Caspar Bartholin naming them Capsulae Atrabiliare, which translates as the black bile capsule. It fits into the old humoral theory, if you remember. And this theory had many supporters in its day as well as detractors. Now, if that name made your ears perk up... It may be because you've heard of Bartholin's glands and cysts, which lie near the opening of the vagina. However, it was Caspar Bartholin the Younger, a Danish anatomist, who identified these, but in fact it was his grandfather, Caspar Bartholin the Elder, who was credited with the first description of the adrenal glands in 1611, as his was published publicly before Eustachie's work. Jean Riolin the Younger of France, so-called as his father was also a famous French anatomist, opposed this view of the adrenals, noting that, quote, I've never seen a cavity in them. Should they have a cavity, no pee would find a place in it, end quote. A fun fact, the arc or anastomosis of Riolin, an artery that connects the superior and inferior mesenteric arteries, is named after Jean Riolin the Younger. However, as the 1600s wore on 
investigation into the adrenal glands began to reveal more and more of its secrets. With Dr. Antonio Maria Valsalva, of the eponymously named Valsalva Maneuver, indicating that he believed the glands regulated libido. In 1656, the English physician and anatomist Thomas Wharton, of Wharton's Jelly, which lies in the umbilical cord, published Adnographia Siv Glandularum Totius Corporis Descriptio, or A Description of the Glands in the Entire Body, in which he noticed the close association of the adrenals with the nearby nervous plexuses and suggested that the adrenal glands concentrated some sort of substance from the nerves before secreting it. And while he published no experimental evidence supporting his hypothesis, his was the first association of the adrenals with a neuroendocrine function, and he would be proven correct more than 200 years later. That's a pretty impressive educated guess in my opinion. In 1716, the Academy of Sciences in Bordeaux, France, held a contest to answer the question of Quel est l'usage des glands serenals, pardon my French, or what was the function of the adrenal glands? But no contestant submitted a convincing enough answer to be declared the winner. Investigation of the adrenals then stagnated until the beginning of the 1800s, when advances in microscope technology allowed further study. In 1805, Georges Cuvier determined that the adrenals were a solid structure, and in 1852, Albert von Kolliker was able to recognize and record the difference between the cortex and the medulla. Now in 1855, Thomas Addison, a physician and lecturer at Guy's Hospital in London, wrote his final paper before his death called On the Constitutional and Local Effects of Disease of the Suprarenal Capsule, which was based on his observations of patients who developed a peculiar constellation of symptoms and were found to have lost most of their adrenal tissue when examined at autopsy. Now these symptoms included weakness, fatigue, anemia, gastrointestinal disturbances, poor cardiac function, hypotension, and dark pigmentation of the skin. These symptoms are now known as Addison's disease. It would not be until 1894 that George Oliver and Edward Schaefer demonstrated that the adrenals contained a substance that could affect the heart by making extracts of adrenal gland tissues from all sorts of animals including sheep, guinea pigs, cats, and dogs, and then injecting them into other animals. Now they noted that the medullary extract had this effect on the heart, while the cortical extract did not. And once this compound was isolated, it would go on to be called adrenaline, as in from the adrenal, a fact that I actually had never put together before. And while they did not isolate it themselves at the time, they were able to declare, quote, one of the main functions, if not the main function, of the suprarenal capsules is to produce a material which is added in some way or another to the blood, end quote. In 1896, the legendary physician William Osler of Johns Hopkins used extracts from pig adrenal glands to treat patients with Addison's disease with mixed results. In 1897, John Jacob Abel, also of Johns Hopkins, became the first to isolate epinephrine from the adrenals. Now, despite these incredible experiments and discoveries, it would not be until 1948 that medicine gained the ability to synthesize cortisone, which comes from the cortex of the adrenal glands, and use it to treat patients for which Edward Kendall, Taddeus Reichstein, and Philip Hench won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1950. By 1948 or 1949, the drug giant company Merck was already producing it commercially, and it is one of the most widely used medications, given its ability to suppress the immune system. Cortisone injections are used to ease inflammation in joints and tendons, and are used systemically in a broad variety of conditions, ranging from autoimmune disorders to organ transplants. In 
But that's enough about the medical history of the adrenals. Let's get to the good stuff, the surgery part. In 1889, John Nosley Thornton performed the first adrenalectomy on a 36-year-old woman who was suffering from hirsutism, or excess hair growth, from a hormone-secreting tumor which turned out to weigh 20 pounds. Unfortunately, she died from occurrence two years later. Nosley Thornton was a Scottish surgeon who trained under the legendary Joseph Lister, see episode 4, was a big believer in his carbolic acid fog, and worked at the Samaritan Free Hospital in London, England. In 1927, Lennox Broster, a South African-born British surgeon, was asked by a colleague to operate on a 15-year-old girl who was undergoing virilization, which was believed to be secondary to an adrenal tumor. Virilization in this context means an excess amount of sex hormones causing early puberty and the development of male characteristics. During the operation, they found one adrenal to be much larger than the other and removed it. Pathology demonstrated not a tumor, but rather diffuse hyperplasia, meaning increased numbers of cells, which they called adrenogenital syndrome. We now call this congenital adrenal hyperplasia. In 1932, Broster developed a new technique to access and remove the adrenal gland. The prior technique involved rib resection to achieve access to the gland, and Broster instead made, quote, a long oblique incision that was made over the rib that covered the adrenal gland, and the rib was fractured, allowing the incision to be continued through the parietal pleura, which is the lining around the chest cavity. The diaphragm was then divided, giving access to the gland, end quote. Now, Broster's work led him not only to work on congenital hyperplasia, but also on intersex patients, with a 1938 news story describing him as, quote, the famous surgeon who has brought new hope and happiness into the baffled lives of many men and women who were desirous of changing their sex, end quote. Now, intersex can be broadly defined as a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the binary definitions of male or female. Contrast this to transgender, which describes the condition in which one's Gender identity does not match one's assigned sex. Broster's most well-known patient was Mark Weston, who was born Mary Louise Edith Weston and raised as a girl. But let's be clear here. He was born with what I can only find described as, quote, atypical genitals, end quote, and was assigned female gender at birth, consistent with being intersex. Weston won the British Women's National Championship in javelin throw and discus throw in 1929, and the shot put titles in 1925, 28, and 29. In the 1926 Women's World Games, so-called because the International Olympic Committee refused to include women's events at the time, Weston finished sixth in the two-hand shot put, where the final result was the sum of the best throw with the left hand and best throw with the right hand. Weston also competed in the 1928 Olympics. Weston then revealed that he identified as a man after his athletic career, and underwent two surgeries from Broster in 1936, with Broster saying, quote, Mark Weston, who has always been brought up as a female, is a male and should continue to live as such, end quote, an attitude quite ahead of his time. Now, interestingly, Mark Weston would go on to be married and have three children. Now, around the same time, in 1932, Harvey Cushing, see episodes 42 and 43, was the first to recognize the connection between the pituitary gland and the adrenals in naming his eponymous disease, and a bit of confusion that many medical students may sympathize with. Cushing's syndrome is the collection of signs and symptoms caused by prolonged exposure to glucocorticoid steroids, such as cortisol. 
Now, there can be a number of causes, and Cushing's disease is one of these, specifically a tumor in the pituitary gland of the brain. Remember, Cushing was a neurosurgeon. That secretes a hormone that makes the adrenal glands produce too much cortisol. By 1934, Dr. Walters and his team at the Mayo Clinic had accumulated a case series of 10 subtotal adrenalectomies for suprarenal cortical syndrome, which is what Cushing's syndrome was called at the time. But they had a mortality rate of 30%, despite using the most potent adrenal extracts available at the time that had been developed by Kendall. I'll skip ahead to 1949, where Dr. James Priestley of the Mayo Clinic reported a case series of 29 adrenalectomies with the first 20 receiving the older adrenal extract, and nine receiving cortisone, which Merck had started producing just the year prior. The group of 20 patients receiving the extract demonstrated the same 30% mortality as previous groups, but the group receiving the cortisone had not a single fatality. All right, now let's just take a step back into a brief return to the past here as we focus primarily on cortisol-secreting disorders, but have not mentioned the surgical history of medullary tumors. Now, this takes us all the way back to 1886, when Felix Frankel, a German clinician, had an 18-year-old patient by the name of Mina Roll, who died suddenly after a hypertensive crisis, meaning uncontrollable high blood pressure. During the autopsy, she was found to have large bilateral adrenal tumors, which led Dr. Frankel to believe that they were the culprit, saying, quote, either a chemical substance is secreted in the tumor cells and passes into the venous blood, or in which the cells themselves are destroyed, end quote. Now, fascinatingly, a 2007 review of Frankel's report led the investigators to several descendants of Ms. Roll, and it was found that several of them had also needed surgery to remove adrenal tumors, which in turn led to a RET gene mutation being identified in the family, meaning they had something we call MEN2 syndrome, MEN standing for multiple endocrine neoplasias. These tumors continued to be discovered during autopsies and were named paragangliomas, until 1912 when Ludwig Pick of Germany coined the term pheochromocytoma to refer to these tumors both in the adrenals and at extra-adrenal sites. The name comes from a compilation of Greek words, phaos, meaning dark or dusky, chroma, color, cytos, cell, and oma, tumor. This refers to the color change the cells take on when exposed to chromium salts. However, the significance of these tumors were not fully understood with most people thinking them simply coincidences to the patient's death by hypertensive crises, until Marcel Lab of France and his team associated these tumors with the symptoms of paroxysmal or sudden onset hypertension in 1922. The first attempt at treating a pheochromocytoma surgically was in 1923 by Professor Villard in the French city of Lyon, when he removed a malignant suprarenal paraganglioma, but the patient died from, quote, shock disproportionate to the severity of the operation, end quote, which we now know would be secondary to the sudden loss of catecholamines, or stress hormones, so to speak, once the tumor was removed. The first successful removal of a pheochromocytoma occurred in 1926 by Caesar Roux, a Swiss surgeon who also invented the famous Roux-en-Y procedure, see episode 40, with the removal of an orange-sized tumor from the site of the right adrenal gland. Charles Mayo, one of the Mayo brothers covered in episode 49, removed an adrenal tumor seven months later than Rue, which was given several names such as retroperitoneal malignant blastoma and encapsulated fibrous cellular retroperitoneal malignant neoplasm. Now, of course, 
All of this is referring to a pheochromocytoma. However, Mayo was the first to publish his work the following year in 1927, whereas Rue did not publish his until 1928, and therefore Mayo is generally credited as the first to perform a successful adrenalectomy. And there's a lesson for you out there. Publish your work. Today, adrenalectomies are performed laparoscopically for almost every indication, although occasionally large malignant tumors such as adrenocortical carcinomas are still approached openly, which is a blessing as the approach involved a massive incision and often, as we saw, removal or destruction of a rib. Advances in medications to replace adrenal hormones after adrenalectomy or to control hypertension while preparing to operate on a pheochromocytoma have made these diseases much more manageable. With five-year survival rates for localized pheochromocytomas at 95%, and for adrenalectomy for Cushing's disease at 79% survival at five years. Now we're coming close to the end of our time here, and so I'm sure you're wondering how the adrenals tie into bringing us to the brink of nuclear war. In 1960, the Cold War was in full swing, with Fidel Castro conquering Cuba and China being refused entrance to the UN the preceding year. A young senator from Massachusetts by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy had just won the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party, in part by projecting an air of youth and vigor, declaring himself the healthiest candidate in the country for president. However, we now know that was not the case. In fact, Kennedy's youthful tan, rather than being a sign of a fit outdoorsman, was actually hyperpigmentation secondary to his pituitary hypersecreting ACTH, or adrenocorticotropic hormone, the hormone that stimulates the adrenal glands to produce cortisol, because his adrenals were effectively gone from Addison's disease. ACTH made him tan because it also activates melanocytes to make more pigment in the skin. Kennedy's illness was so severe that he actually received the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church before he underwent back surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City in 1954. While prolonged and excess use of steroids can cause psychosis, these psychiatric symptoms can be managed by a responsible and competent physician. However, President Kennedy in his pain turned to one Dr. Max Jacobson, who is also known as Miracle Max or Dr. Feelgood, a German-born physician known for treating celebrity clients. He was known in particular for his, quote, miracle tissue regenerator shots, end quote, which contained amphetamines, also known as speed, animal hormones, bone marrow, enzymes, human placenta, painkillers, steroids, and multivitamins. Now, when told by his own physicians what Jacob's treatments involved, Kennedy was reported to have said, quote, I don't care if it's horse piss, it works, end quote. By 1962, Jacobson had visited the White House more than 30 times before White House physicians finally banned him from treating the president. This was very fortunate for anyone who isn't a fan of nuclear winter, as 1962 saw the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we can only imagine how a president on such a dangerous concoction of medications could have triggered that perilous situation. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it, and that it added a bit to your knowledge of the adrenal glands. We will return to our regularly scheduled programming, as mentioned at the end of the last episode, with the urologist Hugh Hampton Young and his role in prostate surgery, along with all sorts of other fun tidbits. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow us on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. 
I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.